This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. So we never really grow out of that. We just stop protecting the way that we should. And so the Bible comes back to that and says, wait a minute, wait. we need to start protecting our minds again. Because as we took a look at last week, what comes into our mind goes into our heart, comes out in our words, our actions, and our choices that we make 100% of the time. So the Bible says, be really, really careful about the things that you think about. Because here's the thing, if you don't, you're forfeiting that joy, you're forfeiting that peace, you're forfeiting peace of mind by focusing on the wrong things. So as we looked at last week, everything comes down to perspective, and we have to view life from a biblical perspective. I have to look at everything through the lens of what the Bible says. We struggle with this because we live in an unbiblical, ungodly world that doesn't value the things of the Bible. Our world sees the, the Bible as an antiquated book or a piece of, uh, of ancient literature. Those who are skeptics of religion would say that it's a book that was written by men over thousands and thousands of years ago and it's been corrupted so much that you can't really make heads nor tails of it these days and so uh, take it for what it's worth, put it that way. And so we live in a world that's very skeptical of the Bible and very uh, at opposite ends of the spectrum, I guess you could say, as far as what are valued. And if we're not careful, sometimes we begin to look at our life from a worldly perspective instead of a biblical perspective. So I begin to look at maybe my success in my career or lack thereof, and I judge my worth based on how good or how bad my career is going right now because I'm judging it from the wrong perspective. I judge my marriage sometimes based on how happy I am or what value I receive from the person I've committed my life to, and I make a determination of the success of my marriage based on how I feel in a given moment. I base how good of a parent I am uh, on my children's behavior, sometimes, again, by the wrong metrics. If my kids get really good grades, then I must be a really good parent and send them to a really good school. If my kids are struggling in their schoolwork, then they're just like their mother and they can't pay attention to anything. And we judge our kids based on what? Grades that they get on a test at school? Maybe we'll judge our kids based on their behavior on a given day. You never listen to anything. You'll never amount to anything because you can't listen or pay attention. Or maybe our kids are well-behaved kids. And the teacher says, they're the most well-behaved kid in the classroom. And we kind of pop our collar and say, yeah, they're my kids. What would you expect? And then we judge our children, success or failure, based on uh, uh, third parties' input on how well our kids are behaved in a given uh, really, really controlled environment. Why? Because we're using the wrong metrics. We're looking at it from a worldly perspective, not a biblical perspective. What if my success and failure in life had absolutely nothing to do with how much money I make? What if my success or failure in life had nothing to do whatsoever with my vocation that I do? What if my success or failure had nothing to do in, in life that, nothing to do with the type of car that I drive, what my address is, what type of house I live in, or how fancy my furniture is? That's a biblical perspective. Your success or failure is based on your, get this, obedience to God's word. You say, well, that's a pretty narrow perspective. It is. It's called a biblical perspective. And we've been taking a look on, on Sunday nights through the book of James. I would encourage you, if you don't normally come on Sunday nights, come on Sunday nights. It'll help you. We're going verse by verse through the book of James. Totally different message on Sunday nights at 5 o'clock. 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock service are the same message. 5 o'clock service, totally different. So I encourage you to come on, on Sunday nights. But Sunday nights, you take a look at the book of James tells us, hey, don't give preference to a guy because he's dressed really well or you think that he might have money over someone who is, maybe isn't dressed well, maybe who you don't think has money. Why? Because we value things that God doesn't value 
And having a biblical perspective means I need to value the things that God values and don't value the things that the world values when they're at odds with one another. We're getting ready to have a, a men's prayer breakfast. Again, in eight years at Hui Kala, we've never had a men's prayer breakfast before. We're, we're going to have one uh, on the 13th of November. Uh, and it's a men's prayer breakfast featuring real bacon. No turkey bacon uh, is allowed that day. So, uh, and here's what we, we did. We made this an all-ages event. So if you have boys, bring your boys to this because it's going to be a lot of fun. But when we guys get together and we talk about the things that we value, the things that are important to us, we don't talk about how much money you make, what your title is at work, what people call you, what type of car you drive, how expensive the, the school is your kids are in. You know what words we use when we talk about success as Christian men? Character, integrity, love for God, love for others, love for country, compassion, kindness, mercy, truthfulness, loyalty, how much do those things cost? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, you can have everything that God offers without having being really rich? Absolutely. Actually, Jesus said this. It's easier for a uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Because people that are rich generally think they have everything they need anyways. So what do we do? We look at life from a biblical perspective. Philippians 4.8 helps you to calibrate your mind to think biblically. We think of any type of machinery or test equipment uh, that you might have. It has to be calibrated. The gas pumps that you have, uh, that you put gas in your car with, have a little sticker that shows when they were measured. You go to the store to buy a steak and they put it up on the scale. There's a little sticker that shows when that was calibrated to make sure that what you see is what you get. Philippians 4.8 is your mind calibration tool to make sure that what you see is what you get. You've got to look at it with the appropriate perspective. Because here's the problem. The unsaved man's mind is depraved. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the Word of God, we have nothing but death and depravity in the mind of man. Nothing else. Romans chapter 1 has an absolute, utter takedown of the man without Christ. We don't have time to dig into Romans chapter 1. If you want to read it as part of your reading this week, I would highly encourage you to do that. Romans chapter 1, basically, I'll give you the, the short version of this. Man thought that he was smarter than God, and so he decided we don't need God anymore. Does that sound like anybody, uh, anything familiar to anybody that's heard anything going on in the world today? We don't need God anymore. So then they began to worship the creation rather than the creator. And what did God do? The Bible says that God gave them up to a reprobate mind. Fine. You want to do your life without me? Go right ahead. And God's the type of God that when you tell God, hey, God, buzz off, leave me alone. God's like, okay, fine. Go for it. You're more than welcome to do it on your own. And so God gave them up to what type of mind? A reprobate mind. And the end result of a reprobate mind and a sinful condition that spiraled out of control was this. That men began to do things with other men that were unseemly and women with other women that were unseemly. It's talking about homosexual sexual relationships. So in Romans chapter 1, the depth of the depravity of man is evidenced in their willingness to celebrate sexual depravity. Does that sound familiar to anybody today? But here's the worst part. The end of uh, Romans chapter 1 says this, that God's judgment is not just coming for those who commit those acts, but those who take pleasure in them that do. So basically, if you're saying like, hey, I know it's wrong, but they're welcome to do whatever they want to, and I celebrate their right to choice, the Bible says that you're just as guilty as everybody else. And you say, well, I don't think that's very fair. I'm not here today to talk about fairness. I'm here to talk about what the Bible says. And you will find that the Bible many times says things that are incredibly offensive to the human heart. Incredibly offensive. But the heart of man, apart from God, is completely and totally depraved. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 5, Paul's talking to Timothy about some people that he's going to uh, interact with. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 5, he says, Perverse disputings of men corrupt minds. 
they're destitute of the truth and supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw yourself. Timothy, you're going to meet some guys who say some utterly perverse things because their mind is corrupt. And they've deceived themselves to think that the more stuff they get, the better off they are. And here's what he says to them. Get away from those people. He doesn't say debate them. He doesn't say sit down and try to reason with them. He says, Timothy, get away. Because their heart and minds are so corrupt that they cannot process truth. Romans chapter 8, verse number 6. Paul says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity. The unsaved man's mind makes him an enemy of God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. That the Bible says that the unsaved man is not only an enemy of God, but his way of thinking makes him an enemy of God. I, the, the song the lady sang this morning, I've never heard before until yesterday. But I love the line in there that it says, no greater love hath a man than he that laid down his life for his, fr- for his friends. It's a Bible verse. But then it says, but when I was an enemy of God, he gave his life for me. Wow. That takes it to the next level. It reminds me of what Romans chapter 5 says, that for a good man, some people would dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the, the, the sin-sick mind of mankind, which again includes you and I, it's not a regenerated mind, it makes us an enemy with God. We don't, we're not on the same level, we don't, have the same perspective. We don't value the same things because our heart and mind is depraved. And we're born into this world as enemies of God. We're born into this world with a depraved mind. The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have violated God's law, not once or twice or that one time when we were in college, but again and again and again and again, we sin against the holy God. And you cannot continue to sin against God without consequences. There's always consequences. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because I've sinned against God and you've sinned against God, we deserve God's punishment, which is not only physical death, but it's an eternal death in a place called hell. Hell's a real place that burns with real fire. There's no second chances. There's no getting out. That's what we deserve because of our sin. But because God loves you, God loves me so much, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. He gave himself and paid a debt he did not owe and paid a price that I could not pay to save us from our sins. But it's not a blanket forgiveness. It's not just an automatic forgiveness to all mankind. You must choose for yourself. You must choose. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he's the only way to heaven and I'm willing to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus. I spoke with a young lady last Sunday night on her way out of church. She had raised her hand that she was for sure she was going to heaven. And I said, hey, tell me about that. How do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And she said, because I'm a good person. And I said, okay. I said, here's the thing. There's kind of a line of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And she goes, right. And I said, and you're so good that you make it above the line. And she says, well, I'm not perfect, but I sure try to be. Okay. I said, so if somebody is good most of the time, but there's sometimes where they're not so good, are they above the line or below the line? And she says, well, I guess it, it's all about your heart and, and the intentions of your heart. I said, okay. Who judges the intentions of your heart? And she says, wait a minute. I think I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the fact of the matter. If there was a line of good or bad We're all under the line, the Bible says. All of us, 100%. There's none righteous, no, not one. None of us could make it over the line if we tried. And I said, we need someone who would pay the price for us so that God doesn't see our wretchedness and sinfulness, but he only sees us as good. And she said, that makes sense. And the opportunity to go through the gospel with her, and she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And to God be the glory for that, the gospel. None of us are good. All of us are depraved. My heart craves sinful things. So my heart needs to be submitted to the lordship of Jesus and obey him 
by the power of not positive thinking, not trying harder, doing more, but by the power of the Holy Spirit changing me day by day to be more like Jesus Christ. But you see, the unsaved man cannot discern spiritual things. The Bible says the, the, the truth of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is foolishness to them that perish, but unto us it's the power of God unto salvation. You see, the average unsaved person looks at this and they might be kind enough to say, well, I'm glad you found something that works for you. I'm glad you found something that you can hold on to, but it's just not for me. They look at the Bible and they say that the Bible is just an old book full of old fairy tales that helps people be controlled by religious systems and it was written by a bunch of people who wanted to take your money and give you false hope because the Bible's a spiritual book and it can't be discerned by unspiritual people. Sometimes people say that religion is a crutch for weak people. Well, I would say that the gospel is the antidote for sick people. And we are sin sick. I would confess, I am weak and I need someone stronger than me and his name is Jesus. I'll confess that. I don't have a problem confessing that. I don't think it's a crutch and I don't believe that religion is the answer. I believe that Jesus is the answer. But you see, the unsaved man doesn't understand these things. Uh, the, the Bible says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14, but the natural man, the unsaved man, receives not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So here's what happens for the young lady that was saved last Sunday night and every single person in this room that has been saved or born again. And you've got to make that decision for yourself. And if you haven't been saved, be saved today. It's not a matter of joining our church, becoming a Baptist, getting baptized, going to a class. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. It can take five minutes or it can take 15 minutes to show you what you need to know from the Bible to become a child of God and be forgiven. But the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and are born again, inside of you, the Holy Spirit, God himself, now takes up residence. That your body, the Bible says, becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And inside of you, now the Holy Spirit is going to tell you, uh-uh-uh, don't do that. Nope, can't do that hey, wait a minute, you said that, but the Bible says you shouldn't have. And inside of us now becomes almost like a regulator that helps us discern truth from error, right from wrong, good versus evil, that wasn't there before because now we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But you see, the unsaved man doesn't have those things. Therefore, he makes his basis of judgment based on how he feels, what he sees, what he's experienced, and what feels right right now? But for Christians, that shouldn't be the case. We're to have a biblical perspective. So you cannot have a proper perspective on life or anything else without being saved. And so if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, please don't leave here without knowing for sure that heaven is your home and that Jesus Christ is your Savior. It changes everything for you. And you won't look at life the same. It's interesting that we live in a, a world today where the majority of people in this world, their greatest fear, greatest fear, is getting sick and dying. Biggest fear. Hey, look, my biggest fear, snakes. Clowns. Snake clowns. For those that got that reference, I applaud you on your entertainment choices. No, no seriously, like, look, I'll tell you this, because I have a biblical perspective, I know for a fact I'm going to die, 100%. No doubt about it. Does that bring fear to my heart? No, it actually brings a lot of comfort. Because when this is over, the rest of my life really begins. Because life isn't about what you see here. This is just the waiting area until you get to get on with life. So I don't, I don't fear death because I have a biblical worldview, biblical perspective. Look, I, I fear getting sick and dying as much as I fear getting hit in the crosswalk. If you've seen the crosswalks around here, you'd understand why that's probably a legitimate fear in some cases, right? But I, I, fear, I, I fear getting sick and dying as much as I get, fear getting hit by a drunk driver on my way home from Safeway. Is it a reality? Sure. Am I going to dwell on it? No way. No how. 
I'm going to live my life. Why? Because I have a biblical perspective. But let me tell you, help you with this. If I thought for a split second that when I take my last breath here on planet Earth, everything is over for me forever, let me just tell you, that changes my perspective. I'm going to live life to the fullest. I'm going to grab the bull by the horns. I'm going to go for the gusto. I'm going to reach for the brass ring because you get one time around and I'm going to make sure mine's a good one. What's the difference? Perspective. Biblical perspective changes everything. And for the unsaved man who has nothing to look forward to and thinks that this world is all there is to offer, who has created his own wisdom and value system, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we got to make sure that we calibrate our mind appropriately. Proper thinking comes from focusing on truth. If you look at Philippians 4.8, he starts and says, Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are, the very first thing he says, true. We've got to focus on truth. What I'm getting ready to say might make some people mad. If it makes you mad, see me after church, I'll apologize to you for making you feel bad. But look, one of the main reasons why I do not allow myself to watch news, to read a lot of news stories, or to spend time on social media is because the majority of it is fake, made up, or trying to tell me how to think. And I can't afford it. I just can't. And so, please understand, I'm not in, in favor of, like, all of us, like, moving to Texas and making a compound and creating a utopia or anything like that. I'm not telling you that you should, you know. Look, I read news for facts, Tell me when I can go sit down in a restaurant without showing my papers. I want to know that. That's helpful to me, right? Tell me like, when people can go to football games and things like that. That's helpful. Those are facts. Don't tell me how I should feel about some bill that might get passed six months from now and the senator and what he did and who he's taking money from. I don't need to know any of that because that influences how I think. I just need facts. Does that make sense? The Bible says focus on truth. I don't know what's true anymore. Do you get that? When we have documented cases of the government altering data and deleting stuff, I don't know what's true anymore. And again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm passing out aluminum foil so everybody can make their own hats, okay? <laughs> I promise. I promise I'm not that way. And so don't think that this is some crazy conspiracy theory political statement. I'm saying there's no way to know what's true anymore. So I have to, the Bible tells me, Philippians 4.8, whatsoever things are true. And if you don't know if it's true or not, just let it go and come back to what's true. God's word is always true. I'm going to spend time in that every single day. I'm going to allow that to inform my thoughts and what I believe and how I think. Facts that I can identify that are legitimate facts, I'll consider those into how I think and how I feel and the way that I view the world. But look, I'm not going to take somebody else's word for something because they say it's true. I'm not going to stop thinking because somebody tells me I should stop thinking. I'm going to allow my mind and my heart to be influenced by, get this, the word of God. Not some YouTube video that you watched. Not some place that's harvesting, you know, kids' organs for, you know, designer drugs and stuff like that. I'm not talking about crazy stuff. I'm talking about what does the Bible say. That informs my heart because what I think about allows me to have appropriate perspective. You need to understand some things about focusing on truth, though. Truth is, is not relative. Truth is objective. It's become very popular in our society, especially in the last couple of years, to use the phrase, well, he needs to speak his truth. Well, if that's his truth, we want to respect that, but that's not actually what happened. Wait a minute. Let me just tell you this. The truth doesn't belong to anybody. The truth is the truth. It's it. It's facts. The sky is blue. Okay, who does that belong to? Is that your truth or my truth? It's nobody's truth. It's God's truth because God made the sky blue. How about that? So when we share God's word, we need to understand we don't ever have to apologize for what the Bible says. I'm not sharing my truth with you today. I'm sharing with you the truth. 
capital T truth, God's word. And that doesn't change. The so-called church has gotten itself in a mess today because we make excuses for the Bible and we make up our own thoughts about the Bible and we try to mash it together and bring secular humanism together with the Bible. And let me just tell you, the two don't fit. Well, we can have women pastors because a long time ago things were different in biblical times. God is the same. God's expectations are the same. Well, I listen to Joyce Meyer and she could preach you under the table. I wholeheartedly agree with that statement, but it's unbiblical. Is Joyce Meyer a better communicator and preacher than me? Maybe so. But she preaches heresy and she's, her preaching is unbiblical. You say, well, I don't think that's very fair. 1 Timothy chapter 3. When men desire the office of a bishop slash pastor, he desires a good work. Let a husband, let a, a elder, a bishop, pastor be blameless the husband of one wife, period, done. That knocks out 100% of female pastors. Not because I thought it, because God's word says it. And, and again, if that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry that your feelings were hurt, but I can't apologize for what the Bible says. Simple as that. So when we get into churches today who want to ordain gay, female, transgender pastors, we have to look at that and say, wait, wait, hold up, what's going on? Well, we're just speaking our truth. No, no, you've abandoned biblical truth. <laughs> I, said, I saw a news article the other day, and again, I just usually skim headlines. If I find something interesting, I'll read and try to pick out the facts. But one of these statements in the article says, uh, he shared his, uh, his viewpoint of it, which was an alternate representation of the facts. And I, th I stopped there, paused that. I thought, I've never heard it described that way before. An alternate representation of of the facts. That's a lie. Wait, that's just a really fancy way of saying he lied. An alternate representation of the facts. He lied. Okay, I could have made the sentence much shorter. He lied. And I thought to myself, but that's the society we live in today. Like, you can't call somebody a liar. You can't say that wasn't true because that's his truth. Truth is not relative Truth is objective. It is what it is. The Bible is what it is. Let me just tell you this. There are parts of the Bible that I don't like. Simple as that. Does it change the Bible? No, it doesn't. Let me help you with something. You're taking notes. You should jot this down. Facts don't care about feelings. And the flip side of that is true. Feelings don't care about facts. Now, what does that mean? That means that we as Bible-believing Christians have to be really careful with people's feelings because their feelings can get hurt by facts. I can't apologize for it. Look, if you're a very, very committed Muslim, I can tell you this, according to the Bible, you're going to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell that burns with real fire for all of eternity because you have not trusted in Christ alone as your Savior. That might hurt someone's feelings. It might even upset them or make them angry. I need to take that into consideration with how I present truth to them because their feelings don't care about the facts they're hurt some of you need to hear that for your marriage as well i'll just tell her like it is and she's just so sensitive sometimes i'm just a straight shooter i call it black and white if your feelings get hurt your feelings get hurt feelings don't care about facts you need to love your wife the way that jesus loved his church and be gracious and kind and compassionate and merciful and loving towards her and walk her through difficult times and say, sweetheart, I need to understand how you feel. Help me to understand that because I don't get it. Because her feelings, his feelings, don't care about your facts. Well, I have every right to feel the way. You might have the right. You might be in the right. But you need to think about the feelings of the other person. That's just a little relational advice. Not even tied to today's message, but it's good. But here's the fact of the matter. The facts of God's word, the truth, capital T, truth, doesn't care about how you and I feel about it. Pet peeve of mine, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Would you like to make Jesus the Lord of your life? Hey, Jesus is Lord whether you make him Lord or not. He always will be. He doesn't need you to affirm his lordship. He's the boss. He's number one. He stops. He's Lord. We, he's master. We are slaves. I don't care how you dice it. He don't need your affirmation. By the same token, the Bible doesn't necessarily need you to agree with it for it to be true. 
Whether or not you believe the Bible is true doesn't change the fact that it is. Is water wet? You can think all day, well, it, it, it hurts my heart that water's wet. Doesn't care. Water's wet. Well, it doesn't feel good when it's wet. Doesn't matter. Wet's wet. I don't, I don't like Revelation chapter 20. I'll just say that. All whose names were not found written in the book of life were cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the second death. I hate it. I hate it with every fiber of my being because there's people that I know and people that I love whose names are not written in the book of life, which what happens at the end of eternity? They're cast in the lake of fire for, forever and there's no second chance. This is the second death. Who will they be there with? The Antichrist, the beast, and the devil for all of eternity. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. It makes me feel bad every single time that I read it. Does it change the fact that it's true? Not a bit. It is what it is. Do I wish I could change it? 100%. Can I? Nope. So what do I do? Then I have to recalibrate my perspective, right? I have to say, if that is true, and it is, then I need to think about every single person I know that doesn't know Jesus to make sure that their name does get written in that book so that they don't spend eternity in hell. I got to change my perspective. Ooh, that's a good idea. What do you do? I don't know. For starters, I thought about grabbing my family and leaving the only place that we've ever known as home, Southern California, and going to a place that we're not appreciated and are not accepted in the middle of a city and trying to grab a group of people together who would put their faith in the Word of God and put their faith in Jesus to help reach a city and bring people to Jesus so that so many people don't wind up in hell. That was my first thought. And it's kind of working. This church exists because of Revelation chapter 20. People are going to a real hell that burns with real hot fire, and we need to do everything in our power to make sure that they don't wind up there. How are we doing? Well, last Sunday night we had two people, adults, accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. This morning at the 8 o'clock service, there's a guy who walked out who says, I got saved today. Good. Three out of how many? Well, we got about a million people on our island. Let me just tell you, we're behind schedule. Three, praise God for three. Here's what happened. This morning at 8 o'clock, man, the, the angels in heaven, like bells went off, high five, confetti cannons everywhere for one person that came to Jesus Christ. It was a celebration. Football games today, they don't care about any of that stuff up in heaven. Some of you guys say, man, they're partying in heaven. So what? Three out of, what, we got, a, I don't know, 900,000 to go? We got our work cut out for us. Biblical perspective. You don't like parts of the Bible? Change your perspective. The Bible rubs you the wrong way? <laughs> My pastor used to say this. I used to love him. If it rubs your fur the wrong way, turn the cat around. I always thought, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard in my life. If it rubs your fur the wrong way, turn the cat around. But then I got it. Oh, okay. Change your perspective, right? Got it. But again, when it comes to thinking biblically, it's hard for us to do. But we need to remember that God's the author of all truth. God is the author of all truth. Everything is true is true because God said it. Because God made it to be so. The world that we live in today, God created. And God didn't just create the world and kind of step back and go, wow, that was fun. Let's see what happens. God is intimately, actively involved and everything is taking place and that should help us have perspective. If we're to know the truth and focus on the truth and focus on that which is true, we're focused on the God of truth. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse number four, I love this. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. God is right 100% of the time. The choices that he makes are right 100% of the time. He does everything he does because he knows what he's doing and he's so much wiser than us. And we just need to focus on what is true but please understand this, Satan is the father of lies. Every lie that has ever come up has come from the devil. He, you might have heard somebody say, oh, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Well, first of all, understand this. The devil's not in hell, the devil is in the world that we live in today. The devil will go to hell one day, but not to run the show with a pitchfork poking people and laughing, but to be tormented for all of eternity with all those others that rejected Christ as well. 
so you could say that's a lie of the devil. That would be true because the Bible says he's the father of all lies. He talking, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. You have your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Father of all lies is the devil. And let me tell you this. The devil doesn't just work in really big, huge, ultra lies. He shows those sneaky little white lies that there's a little bit of truth and a little bit of error. Charles Spurgeon once said, spiritual discernment is not determining good, or I'm sorry, right from wrong. It's determining right from almost right. That's a big one. Because here's the thing. In our city today, there will be many churches that gather together to worship Jesus, supposedly. But the focus isn't on Jesus, the focus is on self. What can Jesus do for you this week? How can Jesus make your life better this week? How does Jesus want you to be happy this week? And people are like, yes, yes. But here's the fact of the matter. Think about this with me for just a second. Who would want to take the Bible... And make it not a story of God's glory and the glory of Jesus Christ, but to make the Bible a self-help book focused on you and I. Would that be the Holy Spirit? No, definitely not. Who would do that? Satan? Definitely. I'll take it one step further. And again, some people get upset at me for saying this, but what if there was a version of Christianity that took the focus off of the gospel, that Jesus died on, for sinners on the cross. Take the focus off of that and put it on you and I. And put our focus off of Jesus onto the work of the Holy Spirit, who all the Holy Spirit exists for is to make you speak in tongues, signs, miracles, wonders, prophecies, fortune-telling, future telling who would create a religion to take the focus off of christ and the gospel that saves sinners and place it on what could only classify as a carnival sideshow who would do that and still call it christianity hmm satan are you saying that crazy so-called christian religion is the work of satan i'm saying he's the father of all lies and if the shoe fits, you should probably wear it. I'm saying that every single false religion at its core is satanic. That's why my heart for you is that you would know the word of God and the truth of God's word. I had somebody this past week that I don't know that I've never met that sent me an email and says, hey, I was looking for a church. I came across this church. I feel like it's a good church. Some people have said some bad stuff about it. What do you think? I don't know this person. I don't know anything about this church. But I looked it up, and within about 45 seconds, I realized this is a cult that this person's in. And so I sent them an email back saying, hey, looks like you're part of a cult. I don't know anything other than what I found on the Internet. All signs point to a cult. You should run. And when you do, you'll be criticized. You'll be ostracized. They'll say ugly things about you. But just know they did the same thing to Jesus because you stood for the truth. I'm praying for you that if you are saved, that you would find a true Bible-preaching church. And then the email that I get comes back says, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way about our church. Let me share some resources with you why you're wrong. I was just like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I thought you were really searching for truth, but you're not. You're trying to hook me into your cult. So what do we do? I say, go back to the source of truth. What's true? Because every false religion and every false cult is the product of Satan. So how do we protect against those? Philippians 4, 8, here's what we're going to do. We're going to think on what's true. What's true? Philippians 4, 8. Whatsoever things are true. So in the putting together your thought process on how you're going to think, the calibration tools you're going to use, first of all, is, is this true? Because God's the God of all truth. Next, you're going to have to ask yourself, is this, King James used the word honest, you could also substitute the word honorable. Is this something worthy of honor? And we're going to go through this almost like, I don't know, say a flow chart for some of you that like flow charts, right? 
We're just going to go down the list and see, does this fit for me or should I discard this line of thinking? For example, I always get the short end of the stick. I am always held down. I am always the one who gets looked over, passed over, treated wrongly. Always. First of all, ask yourself that question. Is that true? Well, of course it's true. I'll name such and such coworker that's treated better than me, such and such coworker that does better than me. Okay, let's just take it a little bit wider than your current perspective. The majority of the world's population, 50% of the world's population lives on less than $3 a day. Did you make more than $60 this month? If the answer is yes, you're in the top 50% richest people in the world right now. Like the Forbes list of the 50% of richest people in the you're like on the cover. Look at you. Well, yeah, I mean, compared to those people, I'm probably doing better. Well, what are you comparing yourself to? Do you have a biblical perspective or not? Do you have breath in your lungs? It's the grace of God at work in your life. Do you have food on the table tonight? It's the grace of God at work in your life. Have you heard the name of Jesus? That's the grace of God at work in your life. Stop complaining. Get perspective. That didn't even pass number one, what's true. You need to flush that thought and be grateful for what you have. Whatsoever things are honest or honorable. Next, whatsoever things are just. That word just could also mean righteous. It means the right thing. Someone run through a flow chart. Hey, is that true? Is that honorable? Is that righteous? Is that the right thing? I talked to a, a man this past week who was at our church early on at who we call. He lives on the mainland now. Going through some stuff in his marriage and his family. He's got a wife and two kids. And he said to me, he said, Pastor, I just feel like everything in my life would be so much easier if I would just pack a bag and go away. Like, just leave all this behind. He said, you know how much easier my life would be just to focus on me? Okay, let's run that through the matrix. First of all, is that true? Caring for a family of four versus caring for yourself? Is that easier to do? Yeah, wake up in the morning and just worry about me? Sure. Okay, is there some truth to that statement? Yes. Now, if we flesh that out the whole way, it's obviously still not true. But second of all, is that honorable? <laughs> hey, I'm going to leave my wife and kids to fend for themselves because this is too much trouble. Is that the honorable thing to do? Is that the right thing to do? And I think we would have to go through this list and go, this doesn't pass for any of these. And again, if you want to talk about what's easy, try explaining to a six-year-old why daddy left and doesn't want to be a part of their family anymore. Do you think that's true? It doesn't pass muster on any of these. So what should we do with those thoughts? I told them, don't say those words and don't ever speak that again for the rest of your life. Why? Because it's not a Philippians 4-8 thought. You get a wrong perspective, man. Wrong perspective. And again, we don't even think in the moment of the damage that we're doing on the decisions that we make. Like the decisions that you're making have generational fallout. Generational. Get this. My wife was cleaning out a closet um, last night. She pulled out one of these bins. And the bins is, is full of like all of our old kids' old projects. There's a a project that Thatcher had made when he was in kindergarten. Now, mind you, Thatcher's 27 years old, and his kindergarten project, for some reason, is still in a box in a closet in our house. Like, what are we ever going to do with this thing? We kept it. But also in this box was a big, huge yellow envelope. And I, Angela says, you know what this is? I said, no. She said, it's your grandmother's Sunday school supplies. And so she pulls it out, and it's like Daniel in the lion's den, big picture and stuff like that. And I thought, that's so cool. Put it back in the box. <laughs> like, did it serve any practical purpose? No, but it reminded me in that moment. My dad's mom was married to an alcoholic, his dad. He was a woman abuser, reprehensible human being, but she stayed with him because it was the right thing to do. And she took my dad and his sisters to church. Guess what? That little yellow Sunday school material thing of a my grandma who's in heaven now, that's a picture of a decision that was made that had generational effects. 
I'm here in church today because of my grandmother's decision to do what was right. You know, take it one step further. You're here this morning in this auditorium seated in these wonderful folding chairs that you're in because of my grandmother's decision to do the right thing. I'm talking about generational effects of doing the right thing. And so, we sometimes think of, does this make me happy today? Does this make me happy next month? We need to start thinking, does this set the trajectory for the rest of my life or where I want to be 20 years from now? We need to think through that as we process through the thoughts that we think. Next, am I thinking on what's pure? Do you know what pure means? It means free from any outside influence. Ooh. Yeah, but I think this way because of the way that I've grown up, the things that I've gone through. Angel and I had the opportunity many years ago, probably 15 years ago now, to disciple a, a new couple that had just gotten saved. Their marriage was erect, their family was erect, but they gotten saved by the grace of God. And we're sitting down like one of our very first ones in the and sit across the table from this guy, and he's just, yeah, I was at work today, and my coworker, he's on my last nerve, and I finally stood up, and I said, bro, F you, and he said the word, he said, I almost swung on him, and I'm like, done with you, and I was just like, I'm going to stop you right there, we don't talk like that, well, yeah, that's the thing, bro, like, I'm, I'm not like you, I said, I'm going to stop you right there, you don't know nothing about me, well, that's the thing, like, I grew up in, in L.A., and I was a part of a gang, and I had a really rough childhood. I didn't grow up in church the way that you did, and so I talk a little bit different. That's just who I am. That's where you're wrong again, and the more that you talk, the wronger you get. Just stop, man. If you're a new creature in Christ, you don't act like that no more. Done. Well, no, it's just going to take some time. Time, I got unwillingness to change because of excuses, I don't got time for that. So sometimes we allow our thoughts to be clouded by outside influence that cause our thoughts to be impure. Well, yeah, of course I have to do this because my wife isn't giving me the things that I need. That's an impure thought that's been, been tainted by your own thought process that you have. Well, I know, but I'm only doing this because my husband doesn't do X for me. You're not having pure thoughts that are allowed to be shaped by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It's impure. It's been tainted by outside influence. Next, the Bible says, think on those things that are lovely, which means attractive to God. The types of thoughts that God says, ooh, yeah, that's good. Stay there for a minute. And are the thoughts that I'm thinking on this particular situation, or this scenario, the feelings that I feel, are these things attractive to God, lovely? If we just think of the word attractive, sometimes we, we think of the word attractive like, oh, uh, that person's pretty, or that person's a, a handsome dude, or something like that, they're attractive. The word attractive literally means to draw closer to. It's like a magnet connecting to another magnet or something metal. It's attracted. It's pulling it towards. It's not just like, oh, that's cute. It's a matter of that draws me to that. And I want my thoughts to be attractive to God that draw God closer, that God draws closer as a result of the thoughts that I think. Next, think on what's highly regarded or of good report. What's thought well of? Now, again, this is a perspective thing. Because the things that God thinks highly of are not the things that the world thinks highly of. So if the thoughts that I think are to be on things that are highly regarded, they're highly regarded by God, not by this world. And let me just tell you, some guy that leaves his wife and kids because he's going through a rough spot is not highly regarded by God. Now the world might say, hey, you deserve to be happy. When do you get your turn to do what you want to do? That's garbage. What is attractive to God, what's highly regarded by God, what allows me to focus on pure, unadulterated truth. That's what I want. But please understand, the world is set up to take you the opposite direction. And some of you would do well by running your entertainment through this matrix here. Hey, is this show that I'm watching, is it true? Is it honorable is this 
attractive to God? Hey, look, I love, I love to be entertained more than anybody else in this room. I, I love movies. I love TV shows. But let me just tell you this. The majority of it that I find entertaining is absolute, utter garbage. One of our men was sharing in our small group on Wednesday night. He said that he was uh, watching some old Saturday Night Live clips that he watched whenever, whenever he was a younger guy. He says, it's not funny anymore. Majority of it's inappropriate and sexual innuendos and just like was, wasn't as funny as it used to be. What changed? Did humor change? No, somebody's heart changed where they couldn't laugh at sin anymore. Somebody's mind changed so that they can now run things through a filter going, wow, that's not, that's not attractive to God at all. That's way inappropriate. So we need to allow this to, to be the filter, the calibration for our mind and the way that we think and what we allow in our home, what we allow in our mind and the people that we spend time with. Hey, is this guy that I spend so much time with from work, is this a true honorable relationship that we have is this someone who causes me to focus on the things that are pure and attractive to god is this a person that causes me to think on righteous things or not if not i look you got to work with somebody you got to work with them but i don't have to spend time with you outside of work and i don't have to allow the things that you say to influence me that's for sure i'm talking about taking ownership of your thoughts because our thoughts will bring us peace or they'll steal our joy. Your thoughts will either steal your peace, steal your joy. I think there's a typo on that slide. That's my fault. Our thoughts will bring us peace or they'll steal our joy. Simple as that. Context. Verses 6 and 7 talk about how to have God's peace. Verse 8 tells you how to lose God's peace or how to maintain God's peace and the opposite steals your peace. Look, I guarantee you, I'm, I'm not a, a, a doctor, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor, I have no formal training whatsoever in any of those things, but I'm telling you this, the majority of Christians that I talk with that are struggling with depression, it's generally some type of sin somewhere that's stolen their joy. Because I've seen Christians walk through the valley of the shadow of death with incredible joy. Happiest people I've ever met in my life. And then I've seen Christians who appear to have everything but don't have joy. Hmm. Check your heart. Make sure the thoughts that you're thinking are true. Run these through the matrix of what is right and what is wrong. Because our thoughts guide our words. Every word that comes out of your mouth was first a thought in your brain or something in your heart. Now you might be like me where sometimes your mouth gets ahead of where your brain's at. And I've been guilty before of like, hey, I didn't really think that through what I said before I said it. But here's what happened. I said it. Why? Because it was already in my heart. I was texting with Trey last night and I said something that was inappropriate and I said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Was, was, was it sinful or anything? It was just a wrong attitude. Hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. What happened? Well, I just said it without thinking. No, I didn't. I thought it. And then I typed it out with, it didn't just come out of my mouth. Like I stopped and typed it with words, and I think I put an emoji on the end of it, too. <laughs> right? Ah. What happened? It was in my heart first, and then it came out. And so I got to be careful with what goes into my heart. Got to protect my heart. Next, our thoughts guide our actions. Nothing you ever do happens without thinking about it first. And again, you might say, oh, it's just an automatic reaction. You still had something in your heart that caused you to react that way. I read a lot of books on helping guys overcome pornography and, and women as well. And neuroscientists tell us that when a thought comes into your brain, you have about a half of a second to make a decision based on what you think. So like you're driving your car and some kid runs out in front of your car, you've got about a half second to think, slam on the brakes, and just an automatic reaction in about a half second. If that's true, then you have about a half second when a thought enters your brain to either entertain that thought or to flush it. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to think that. Because... 
Ultimately, if I entertain that thought, it's going to come out in an action in some way. And so I've got to prepare my heart by limiting the thoughts that I think that are not helpful, that don't serve the cause of Christ. Next, our thoughts guide our motives. Why I do the things that I do are guided by my thoughts. Look, when my wife and I were dating, and every single time before I ever picked her up, I had a checklist that I ran through. I got my hair cut, sometimes twice a week I got my hair cut. I showered, I used cologne, I, I washed my car every single time and vacuumed it out before I ever picked her up. She never saw a dirty car, ever. Oh, did she know what she was getting into when she got married? But um, I had a checklist, why? Because my thoughts that I thought, I like this girl, I want her to like me and think well of me, it informed my actions and even my motives. Why do you wash a clean car? Because I'm trying to get something from this. And so our thoughts even inform our actions, but even our motives, why we do the things that we do. That's why excusing improper thinking sets us up for failure, disaster. When we begin to make excuses for poor thinking, it sets us up for failure along the way. It doesn't work that way. Let me help you with something this morning. You can never make excuses for sin. I say it louder for those who didn't hear it the first time. You can never make excuses for sin because you're setting yourself up for failure. My wife and I were talking last night and I told her, I said, I can't imagine where our life would be if we didn't have the Bible to guide us. And she said, what do you mean by that? I said, the majority of people make decisions in their life based on what feels good, what seems right, what they've experienced, or what somebody tells them. And all of those things change from day to day. How I feel is different today than how I felt last night. How I feel this afternoon is different than how I felt yesterday afternoon. The people that I'm listening to today are different than the people that I listened to 10 years ago. And so it's going to be constantly changing in flux. But if I have something that's solid, that never changes, that informs my decision-making process, that's going to bring some stability in my life. So please don't ever make excuses for sinful thinking, sinful actions. This is just the way I am. It's the way I've always thought. Or it's okay for me to think about that as long as I don't act on it. There's a, a group of, of so-called Christians, I don't, I'm not going to say whether they're saved or not, but they think that it's okay for Christians to be same-sex attracted as long as they don't act on it. It's okay for guys to like guys and girls to like girls as long as they don't physically act on it. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says if you look at another person with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Sexual sin is not what you touch, it's what you think. Because thinking turns into what you touch. So never make excuses for wrong thinking because it sets you up for failure. I'm going to ask you a few quick questions and we're done here today. First of all, are you examining your life from a biblical perspective? Do you allow success or your failure of your life to be based on God's scorecard? I loved it when our kids were in school and the teachers would send home rubrics. Kind of tells you how they're going to score this report. Ten, ten points for the cover page. Ten points for the introduction sentence. Forty points for the body. Ten points for the conclusion. I know how they're going to score it based on the scorecard that they give. So many times we score our life based on the scorecard that the world gives us. And then we think we're successful. Hey, look, God doesn't care about any of those things. How much money you have, what kind of car you drive, what kind of school your kids go to, how much you pay for your kids to go to school. None of those things matter to God. What people call you, how many people are impressed by you, none of those things impress God. God's impressed with obedience. <laughs> I was skimming my, my news feed the other day, and there was some article, I forget what it was, that caught my attention. And there was some celebrity who had gotten a tattoo on their arm, and it says, only God can judge me, like all the way down their entire arm. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, you have no idea what that even means. Like, you really don't get it. And what they were trying to say was, like, nobody can say anything. God's the only one that can judge me. But any Bible-believing Christian looks at that and goes, 
Yeah, I know, and that should terrify you. The fact that God can judge you should absolutely scare you witless if you knew what that meant. Because God's given you the scorecard in advance, and you're not hitting like one out of a hundred on his scorecard. And when he judges you, it's not going to be good. And so, whose scorecard are you playing off of? Where do you find success? What perspective do you have? Next, do I view life from an eternal perspective or a short-term perspective? Am I thinking of what's going to make me happy this week? What I want to happen in the next 30 days? Or am I really thinking through what this means for the rest of my life? What this means after I'm dead and gone? What this means after my kids are dead and gone? I want to think eternally. I want to think long term. Hey, look, if the person making my coffee or cutting my hair is going to spend eternity in hell, I want to have a say, at least in that process. That's thinking eternally. Hey, look, if the decisions I make are going to affect my family tree after me, and let me just tell you this, my family tree's got way too many splinters on it already. I'm not going to allow for another one. Not on my watch. So I've got to make decisions thinking that through. Hey, look, every single person in this room 100 years from now is going to be dead, gone, and in the ground somewhere. What are we leaving behind for the people that come after us? It's easy for us to point a finger back at previous generations who abandoned uh, the, the, the praying in public school. It's easier for us to point back at the people who allowed Roe versus Wade to go through and, and the absolute slaughter of unborn children. It's easy for us to point back, but what are we doing and what are we leaving behind? Will we have a generation of kids that look back and go, wow, my parents just wanted to put us in a big church that had a big band and lots of programs. Or will they say, I'm glad my parents taught me the Bible. I got to think long-term, eternally, not short-term on what I want today. Next. Are there any sinful thoughts that I need to repent of? Something that just doesn't jive with what the Bible says, that's not just, that's not good, that's not honorable, that I just need to let that go. Because those thoughts that you're entertaining, they don't serve you well. It's funny, I, I'm careful to use that phrase because there's this idea that, you know, positive thoughts and positivity and let go of anything that doesn't currently serve you well. I'm not talking about serve you well and what makes you feel good. I'm talking about what serves you well in being like Christ. And you cannot entertain sinful thoughts and be what God wants you to be. You just can't. So you need to repent of it and you need to drop it like a bad habit. Next, am I appropriately nourishing my heart and mind? Am I feeding myself spiritually with what I need? Let me just tell you, you don't get to be my size by eating bacon lettuce wraps and kale salads, okay? Let me just tell you that. I like to eat. That's why in our men's prayer breakfast, we're going to have real bacon, no turkey bacon, okay? That's a rule. I eat... I eat not three square meals a day. I probably eat six meals a day, okay? Like, I just love to eat. Can you imagine what would happen to a guy my size if I decided I'd start eating once or twice a week? Man, I'd be sick, shrivel up, probably couldn't get out of bed. Can you imagine what would happen if I decided I was going to start eating once or twice a month? It's only a matter of time before you die. Yeah, I know. Be in the hospital. Yeah, I know. Do you know we have Christians in our church that are on life support spiritually because they can't feed themselves? And look, I'm not mad at you. I want to help you. But you're starving yourself spiritually because you're gorging at the buffet of the world. You have no appetite for spiritual things because all you want to do is eat the chocolate cake that the world has to offer and sit around with icing on your lips. Shame on you. There's a better way. Feed yourself spiritually. Jesus said this, I'm the bread of life, and if you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry ever again. I'm the, the water, living water. 
You take one drink of this, you'll never thirst again. I got the good stuff. I'm what you want. But so many times people sell themselves short. Nourish yourself spiritually. Final thought. Have I adopted a wrong perspective that's stealing my peace or joy? Do I compare myself to the things of this world that has totally sucked my joy away? Do I compare myself to other people that's stolen my joy? Am I unthankful or ungrateful for the things that God's blessed me with that's stolen my joy? Do I view things from the world's perspective and that causes me to feel crummy about what God's given me? And perspective shift. I'm going to look at this the right way. You could look at your marriage as just being crummy and it, it doesn't make you happy. Or you could say, I know the source of healing and I'm going to give God an opportunity to change my marriage. Man, maybe work's a drag. You can say, Praise God, I got a job. I'm going to be salt and light at my workplace. I'm going to do everything I can to point people to Jesus. Maybe you live in a crummy neighborhood or maybe you have a great neighborhood. Hey, guess what? I get to show the love of Jesus to my neighbors here. And for us, we, so we had a pretty crummy neighborhood we lived in California for a while. You know what we did? Went door to door, took cookies, told our neighbors about Jesus, invited them to church. We had one family that actually came. Neighbors. Rough crowd. We lived in one of those neighborhoods in California where the helicopters were always going over the time and shining lights and stuff. That was the kind of neighborhood we lived in at the time. You know what we did? We just tried to tell people about Jesus. Perspective, we need it. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, please don't leave here today without knowing for sure heaven is your home and your sins are forgiven. It makes all the difference in the world. Thanks for joining us for the Huikala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.